A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey everyone and welcome to another week of Bumps Along the Way. Unfortunately, I'm coming to you a little bit sick, so I apologize in advance for the nasally tone that you might catch throughout this week's episode, but hopefully it doesn't disrupt your listening experience too much. I first connected with Jennifer Edmonds on Instagram, a platform that I have mixed feelings about, but it can be a fantastic way to connect and share resources like this. Jen had posted a series of photos titled, Five Reasons Why Just Relaxing Isn't Going to Help You Fall Pregnant. It popped into my feed and I immediately thought, yes, this is someone who gets it. What I didn't realize was just how much she gets it. I learned more about Jen's story and was deeply moved. If I could summarize it, I would say it's a story of someone who, despite no lack of searching, didn't get any answers, failed many times took hit after hit after hit, kept trying everything, never gave up hope, and still managed to build the life of her dreams. Yes, this story has a happy ending. A lot of Jen's story has resonated for me personally. Jen was also an Australian living on the other side of the world from home, going through her fertility nightmare. So thank you, Jen, for connecting and sharing with me. Thank you for being open, vulnerable, and raw. I'm sure there's a lot that plenty of couples are going to take out of this conversation. Jennifer, thank you very, very much for joining me today on this episode of Bumps Along the Way. It would be great, I think, for you to first just introduce yourself. Of course, Anna. Thank you so much for having me. It's just so lovely to connect with you. And I just love what you're doing with this podcast. It's It's been a real treat to listen to. So uh, I'm Jen. I am I'm a mother of two. I had a long fertility journey of my own. And I have been a Pilates teacher for about 15 years now. And it was during my second fertility journey where we were trying to have my son that I found the world of yoga, which sort of sounds a bit silly for a Pilates teacher. It wasn't ever something I really connected with, but 
it was a combination of COVID and lockdown and yoga just being my saving grace that um, it really helped along the way. And I think it's one of the reasons that I was able to fall pregnant naturally in the end, which was a very, very big surprise to everyone involved. <laughs> um mm-hmm. And I guess that's what brings me to connect with you today. We both kind of work in this space, helping support other women who are still on their journey as well. Yes, there's a lot that I would love to go into, given, of course, you're comfortable to share. I guess my my first question, something that I ask a lot on this podcast is, when and where does the fertility journey start for you? So I got married when I was 33 and soon after we got married, we moved overseas from Australia to Thailand and we, we weren't trying, but we weren't not trying as you know, we all kind of know. Um, and we, we were very keen to have a family, but you know, I thought I was young. Uh, we were both healthy. We had no reason to think that anything would be difficult. So I went off birth control. I had a marina IUD. Um, so I suppose that was the start of our fertility journey. After I had my IUD removed, my cycle never returned. My period never came back. So well, I thought was going to be kind of a fun few months. We just kind of give it a go, see what happened, really turned into a really stressful time. So yes, that would be where my journey began. Okay. And the Marina IUD is a hormonal device, right? So would I be right in assuming that's part of the reason why your cycle might not have returned or? Yeah. And you know, it doesn't happen to a lot of women, but there is a type of amenorrhea or lack of ovulation that comes from having birth control. So it's called post-pill amenorrhea. And the marina is very, very similar to the pill. I'd had a lot of trouble with the pill in my 20s. and I really didn't want to continue taking it. And my doctor at the time recommended the marina because the dosage of hormone is much, much smaller because the device is literally inside your uterus. So, you, you know, you're not swallowing a pill that then has to be broken down by your stomach acid and then distributed to where it needs to go. It's sitting right there. Mm. So, you know, she sold it to me as this really easy, simple kind of, you know, low dose device that would be effective and wouldn't have the same side effects as the pill. So, and do you know what? I loved it. It was, it was great. I didn't have any side effects. I didn't have my period while I had the marina, but that's not uncommon. But, you know, when I had it removed, I was told it could take up to three months for my cycle to return. So I wasn't too worried initially, but after that three month period, things got kind of worrying. Mm, I can imagine. And don't need to answer this if you don't feel comfortable, but you mentioned you were 33 by then. Did your age start to play on your mind at all when you started having the concerns those three months later? don't mind talking about this at all. Gosh, I feel like you know, some people message me and they say, oh, I'm sorry if this is too much information. I just like, there is no TMI when it comes to this. I talk about vaginas very quickly with people. So no, don't worry. <laughs> um, no, I wasn't worried at all. Um, you know, I had lots of friends around me who hadn't yet started trying to have children. So I figured, you know, we'll all have our time when we're ready. And no, I didn't worry at all until we realized that things weren't as simple as we thought they were going to be. And of course, the first thing that the doctor says when I think by the time I went to see the doctor, I was 34, you know, his response was, well, you'll be 35 next year. Like you really need to make some decisions here. And, you know, do you want to start IVF? And I was like, whoa, whoa, 
where did all this come from? And you realize the medical worlds have all of this terminology for women when they get past this age of 35. As you're pregnant, they call you a geriatric pregnancy if you're over 35, I know. And um, so you really do feel the pressure immediately. It's pretty scary. Wow. That pressure hasn't come intrinsically. It's come from your healthcare provider referring Mm. to you as geriatric. That is, I can't believe actually that at age 35, that's the terminology that's used. Yeah. And, you know, considering now in Australia, I think the average age of a woman who has her first baby is nearly 31. So, and that's the average. I mean, there are plenty of women. It just, yeah, it's, it, it does start from the medical profession, I think, but it is reinforced through the media and social media and society in general. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Okay. So you mentioned then that you were 34 when you went to see the doctor. Um, and was the investigation that began around getting your cycle back? And uh, no, <laughs> no, no. So look, I have my own opinions of the medical world when it comes to women's health. And, you know, that's a story and a conversation for another time. But no, I don't feel like the focus wasn't on let's get your cycle back. Um, The focus was, well, you want to have a baby. They did a bunch of blood tests, which all came back normal in inverted commas. And um, their only response was, well, you can start Clomid, which is an ovulation induction medication. I tried that and it didn't work. So not that I didn't fall pregnant, but it didn't actually make me ovulate. And soon after that, they said, well, your only other option is IVF. You know, you're getting close to 35. It's something you really need to consider. And, you know, before uh, I got to this stage, I had gone back to my doctor a couple of times and just said, look, I'm a bit worried. You know, I got to the six-month mark. My period hadn't started. It then got to the 12-month mark. Nothing had happened. and they basically said, well, you just have to wait. That was that was kind of it. One doctor very helpfully suggested that I had gone through early menopause. Uh, that was not something I wanted what? to hear. No, I can imagine. <clears throat> no. So it was it was a really confusing, really unsupportive journey, I found. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. You know, I think there's a lot more awareness now around things like medical gaslighting and things like that, especially when it comes to women's health and finding the right care provider is its own bump in the road, I feel, especially when you were overseas, right? Yes, we were living in Thailand, which to be honest was it was a big part of what I think made it so difficult for me. You know, the, you don't speak the language and the doctors all spoke quite good English, but just little things. And, you know, you and I grew up in the same culture and you you would know how to empathize with me in a way that a different culture doesn't. So mm-hmm. just those little things made it so much harder than I think it needed to be. And I even went down the the natural route and I, I found an acupuncturist. I went and saw a functional medicine doctor it's still this kind of cultural mismatch and a language barrier. Just I didn't feel like they really were doing things that, I mean, I didn't know what I needed. You don't know what you don't know when you're in that position. Oh, gosh, it's it's really challenging. I cannot relate here as well, being in the Netherlands, early menopause. What made them say that? Were there other symptoms or other tests that they did? 
it was a fairly flippant remark, but, you know, just going back to the things you don't say, um, I think the doctor was just trying to give me an answer and that was one he came up with on the spot. Uh, anyway, I did have my AMH levels checked, which if you're not familiar there, it measures your anti-malarian hormone, which is produced by your ovaries and it's it's controversial, but I it it kind of tells you your egg count and how likely you are to like it really was originally done in an IVF setting and they would use the AMH test to kind of get an idea of how well you would respond to the medication and they would know what dosage to give you. But it's kind of been taken as this catch-all for how much time you've got left. And I think that that is wildly inaccurate. So that was the only test that I had that came back. It wasn't abnormal, but it was on the low side, lower than what it probably should have been for my age. And I think a lot of that had to do with birth control. Having my ovaries suppressed for so many years, they weren't producing any hormones. So I, I, I really know that that was a big part of it. So my AMH levels were low, but other than that, I mean, I had no other health issues. So I guess that was um, one of his just helpful suggestions. <laughs> you felt like maybe he was just throwing something out there to silence the conversation almost. Maybe she'll go away if I just, you know, she'll, she'll just assume that's done and dusted. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm so sorry. And you're right. You know, you don't know what questions to ask because you don't know what you don't know. So you're relying on accurate information and accurate communication as well. Okay. So you're in Thailand, you had an AMH test. It was low, but not too low. The medical system's kind of brushing you off, it sounds like. So what did you do then? So after we did a couple of rounds of Clomid, which didn't work, they said, look, your only other option is IVF. We have nothing else for you. By this point, it had been oh, about 18 months, I think. And um, we oh. just thought, look, we don't want to do IVF. I knew people who had been through it and I had seen how hard it was for them. But we just decided, look, if it's if it's our only option, at least we can just do it and we'll just have our baby. So I thought, okay, we'll, we'll just, we'll start as soon as we can. Obviously I wasn't cycling, so we didn't have to wait until my cycle started to begin, but they began the injections. And after 10 days, my body hadn't responded even a tiny bit. So when you are stimulating your ovaries for IVF, your estrogen levels are supposed to rise. Um, your FSH levels are supposed to rise, but mine were flatlined. They were literally close to zero, um, which is bad. <laughs> mm. So she tried different dosage for another week. So we were stimming for 16, 17 days, which is a very, very long time. And still absolutely nothing happened. So at that stage, she kind of again shrugged her shoulders and said, look, you know, there are a couple of things that you can try next time, but I'm not sure this is going to be an option for you. So we were looking at the prospect of IVF not even being an option. And, you know, you go from being so excited after you've gotten married and, you know, you just want to have a little family and, yeah, to be thrown in that kind of boat it was really hard so mm. ah, after all of that happened um I decided to fly back to Sydney and try again ah gosh it's so many years ago but my gosh it just brings it all back Anna <laughs> um so there was 
an awesome doctor in Sydney that had helped a couple of my friends. And I just thought she sounds amazing. So I had met with her over Zoom and then decided we would do a cycle with her. So I flew back to Sydney and we started our cycle. And this time things went actually quite well. She had an entirely different protocol. She was pretty unimpressed with the protocol I had been on previously, Um, Mm. was confused as to why they would have given it to me. But Again, you don't know these things, so you're just going with what your doctor tells you, of course. Um, And so for anyone who's been through IVF, you know it is such a numbers game. And, you know, not always, but generally the more follicles and the more eggs you have collected from those follicles, the better. So we had around eight follicles, I think, during that cycle. So things were looking great. Like eight is a good number. Okay. Um, But I only had three eggs collected. So, you know, you you wake up from your, your surgery after your egg collection and you think you've got this number of eight and then it goes down to three and oh, and then the next morning they call you and they tell you how many of your eggs fertilized and we just had one. Mm-hmm. Oh, so I thought, you know, that was another cycle that wasn't going to work. So we had this one little embryo and we decided that if the embryo survived, the, you have to wait five days until it um, can be transferred or frozen. So we thought, look, if it's still going at day five, we'll just transfer the embryo back instead of freezing it, et cetera. So it's probably the worst five days of my life, I think, waiting to find out if that little embryo um, made it, but she did. Oh, and- Oh, Jen. And it's your daughter? Oh, yeah. Wow. Sorry, it's just it's, it's so long ago. And look at me. Oh. But it's so deeply so ingrained into your <laughs> sort of heart. This is a long, yes. this is a long journey for you. You know, 18 it's, months. I'm- not getting your cycle, jumping on a plane, going to Sydney Mm -hmm. and finally getting the treatment and care and results that you've been fighting for. It was about two years at this point. About Um, two years. So, yeah, I mean, it was a a nerve-wracking first trimester and I was very sick, but um, she was a very healthy little girl who's nearly five. So, gosh, Anna, I talk about these things all day and I share my journey all the time. I don't normally get this worked up. You have you have a gift for bringing emotion out of people. Oh, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I didn't want to upset you. No, it's fine. No, it's happy tears. And then everything was okay. Healthy delivery, healthy little one. Look, I wouldn't recommend having uh, your first child in a foreign country, if you can afford it. <laughs> Look, maybe not in Thailand. I didn't have a great experience. It's a, another long story. I was fine. My daughter was fine, um, which is the main thing. It was, yeah, um, not the easiest experience, but um, I ended up having a planned C-section. She wasn't in a great position and that was the recommendation. So, um, and I actually had a really good experience with the C-section, just the aftercare um, was quite difficult for me. Um, a lot of language barrier and mm. learning to breastfeed and trying to communicate with people that don't speak English. And it was really, that was really hard. But um, no, she was healthy and that was the main thing. Good. Yeah, really good. I mean, gosh, I don't know how strong you must have been 
going through this in Thailand. I have so much respect. Did you think about going home or? I didn't actually. Um, You know, I'd had friends in Thailand that had had kids there and they were fine. Um, It was the decision to stay in Thailand was more because I would have been away from my husband for such a long time and he wouldn't have been able to stay with me for very long back in Australia probably only a week or so. And I didn't want to fly with a week old baby. I probably would have wanted to wait a bit longer and you can't really fly after a C-section that soon anyway. Mm. So I decided mostly because of him and just not wanting to be apart. Um, And look, you know, everything was fine and I probably wouldn't take it back. (laughs) But um, had I had the option again, I probably would choose it differently. (laughs) Yeah, always hindsight is <laughs> you see things so clearly in hindsight. Yeah. Another question that you may or may not want to go into and totally fine if not, but two years of this getting to this point, that's a, that's a really long time. And you were recently married, happily married, but then you go instantly into this struggle um, of fertility. What type of impact did it have on your relationship Mm, that's such a good question. And, you know, and I work with women in this space and I really find it either draws you apart or draws you together. And we were so lucky that it drew us together. But like, that's not to say it was easy. It really does affect every little bit of your life going through infertility. You know, it affects your work. You can't plan things. You can't go for promotions. You can't you know, I exercise for a living. So, you know, trying to balance that around treatments was incredibly difficult. And at the same time, you don't always want to tell people what you're going through. I didn't even tell my mum, you know, which seems crazy to me now, but I was just so embarrassed and so ashamed. You know, I thought I'm, I, I'm the healthy person here. You know, I don't have any health problems. I, train people to be healthy. That's my job. Like what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my body? It can't do the one thing it was designed to do. I think all of that, which, you know, I think there's a lot of it for men as well around shame, but it really falls hard on women as well. So it did affect our relationship, but we're lucky that it didn't pull us apart. Yeah. Gosh, I didn't even consider that. Of course, you have a career in health and to be going through a personal private health struggle during those years indeed must have been extremely challenging. And the weird thing about infertility is that you're not sick. Like you don't have, there's no illness. You're not, you're not being treated for something that like, it's not, I'm not comparing it to cancer, but you, you know what I mean? Like people kind of understand if you have to go through cancer treatment, they, they go, oh, I, you know, they, they kind of get it. Mm. But people don't really understand what's involved when it comes to fertility treatments because you're not sick. You, you're able-bodied. It's not like you're, you know, struggling to get well again. It's it's really hard for people to understand. And I think that's probably one of the reasons so many people are so quiet about it and keep it to themselves. 100%. I think Having a full-time job in any field can be office work, health work, manual work. It's hard to know how to talk about this to your employer. What you mentioned before, if they know your family planning, will they look at you for promotion? Will they look at you for extra responsibilities? Will they have doubts in your capabilities and dedication to your work? 
And I really feel like that's something that needs to change because you're right. It's not an illness, but it's a condition that requires treatment and potentially absence from work. And if you can't explain that, that's where a lot of the stress can come in, I think. It's incredibly difficult. Mm, No, for sure. Okay, so you've got one miracle baby (laughs) and then you decide at some point you want to try for number two. I did. So I was lucky I was able to breastfeed her for nearly a year and I really didn't know what journey kind of lay ahead. I decided that if I was going to do IVF again, I would just go back to the same doctor. We'd do another cycle. But a few weeks after I stopped breastfeeding, my period started and I was shocked. Um, (laughs) Couldn't believe it. I was like, hang on. I don't know whether it was just time or pregnancy got my hormones flowing again, whatever it was. So I was like super excited. I thought this time is going to be so simple. I thought, thank goodness we avoid all of that from before and it's going to it's gonna happen in no time. Yeah. So she was a year old and we thought, look, let's just start trying straight away. Um, let's just, you know, have our kids close together. How old was I at this stage? I was 37, I suppose. And so, yeah, we started trying. So my cycles were regular, but a bit short, probably around kind of 23 days. And I didn't know it at the time, but that is a symptom of perimenopause and low MH. So can be a sign that your fertility is declining. Mm -hmm. And I think probably for me, that was the case. So look, we tried for probably six months or so because my cycles were short. We probably had more than six tries in that time. Um, By this stage, we were living in Dubai. We had moved from Bangkok to Dubai and the the facilities were... um, kind of a lot more Westerner friendly, I suppose. Yeah, it's such a a melting pot of cultures in Dubai. It was, there's something for everyone. So, you know, I found a really lovely gynecologist. So I went to her and I said, look, I'm not worried, but I just want to know if I should be kind of thing. And so she did all my blood work, um, all came back normal again in inverted commas. Um, So she sort of said, just keep trying. So I think we tried for another three months and I just decided, look, I don't want to keep going like this without any kind of additional support. I I suspected my cycle wasn't great. So she agreed to give me letrozole, which again is like Clomid. It's a ovulation induction medication. And I think she gave me progesterone as well, which you take after ovulation to kind of support your cycle. My progesterone levels were, again, normal, but on the low side. So we did that for another three or four cycles and still nothing. And, you know, when you you go through all of these, you know, cycles and it's just one after the other and it's two weeks here and two weeks there and it's so incredibly tiring. I went back to the doctor and she ran some more blood work and I had developed a thyroid condition somehow, uh, probably from stress and who knows. Um, so that was another thing to add to the file. So she decided that I should go for some further testing. So uh, I went for an, a scan that checks if your fallopian tubes are open and that your uterus is clear. So I'd had a C-section, as I said, mm. for my daughter. So they just check that there's no scar tissue or anything that could be impacting implantation. So 
went for that. Um, no problems with my uterus, but they found my tubes were partially blocked. Ah, so um, coupled with my age and the you know, the fact that we'd already tried for was probably over a year at this point, about a year. She said, look, you really just need to go back to IVF. This is your only option. Again. Ah, so I thought, okay, I've got two options. I can fly back to Sydney, which is you know, really far away. I was 15 hours from Dubai versus the seven or eight it was from Bangkok. Um, but the clinics in Dubai were really nice. And I found a clinic that I really loved. And I thought, look, um, you, know, you sound amazing. Um, we will go with you. So we started another IVF cycle and the, I, the doctor was incredible. Uh, we had a, a great cycle. It was one of those things where everything was perfect. My hormone levels were perfect. We, you know, um, we collected only three eggs again. Seems like that was my lucky number, but this time two of them fertilized and we had two healthy embryos and they were perfect. <laughs> um, and then, you know, we did the transfer, my lining and everything was perfect. And that wasn't successful either. So ah, we decided we would transfer both embryos at once because we didn't, we didn't really plan on having a third child. So we thought, look, I'm so naive. If it ends up as twins, we're lucky us. But if one of them takes, then great. And that's done. And we don't have to do another cycle and another transfer. So sadly, um, despite everything being perfect, it, it wasn't. Um, and that was probably my lowest point. You know, I was now at the stage where, look, IVF, you know, again, was not an option. And I was so confused because it had worked last time and this time everything looked better and I couldn't understand what had happened. What what messaging are you getting in terms of why it hasn't worked? How are things being explained? So when, oh gosh, I, I hate to use the age 35 example again, but, mm. you know, our fertility doctors like to kind of use a, a sliding scale of fertility once you hit 35. So, in your 20s, you probably have about 70 to 75% of your embryos that are created are chromosomally, chromosomally normal. So it means, you know, everything's lining up and it will create a healthy baby. Mm. But as you get older, a less percentage of your embryos are going to be chromosomally normal. Um, and your body recognizes that and either doesn't implant the embryo, so it doesn't accept it into the uterus, or you end up with an early miscarriage. And I think if you get to the age of about 41, 42, I think the likelihood comes down to about 25% and then drops off even more. So that was the that was the explanation that I was given that likely both of them were not chromosomally normal. Okay. And then you were saying the day after. Oh, so this was March 2020. And the day after this happened, we went into lockdown. And of course, with that, all fertility clinics closed. Uh, so even if I had wanted to do another cycle, there was no option. So another cycle was an option, but COVID meant you couldn't. Correct. So what is then, how are you processing? Like what is going through your head then? Honestly, this was probably my lowest point, you know, where I was, my, my studio was closed as well. So I wasn't able to go to work. 
you know, I was crying on the bathroom floor every night and just developed chronic insomnia. Um, so, you know, I was medicated for my thyroid condition. I was taking all of these hormones, obviously, to help my body create a life. Um, mm. And then on top of that, they threw uh, sleeping tablets into the mix. So, you know, I suspect uh, part of the IVF cycle not being successful had something to do with all of that. All the medication. <laughs> and Yeah. And, you know, I looked like I was holding it together on the outside, you know. I was going to work. I was doing all the normal things, but um, I was definitely a mess. Um, you know, you don't just stop sleeping for no reason. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is where my journey gets a little bit kind of woo and a bit um, alternative, but mm-hmm. I had a friend who was a yoga teacher and I had always practiced yoga, but I, w- I wasn't a teacher. And she said to me, look, I have a friend who teaches fertility yoga. Do you want me to give you her number? <laughs> but my God, I've just been through an IVF cycle. Don't tell me about yoga. Like, I'm sorry. That's just one of those go on a holiday type sentences, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But after a few days, I thought I'm in lockdown and I have nothing else to kind of focus on. I will give it a go. Um, and I fell in love with it, surprisingly. You know, it was such a revelation. It It's such a beautiful practice. It, it just made my life easier you know uh little things started happening like my insomnia disappeared I would wake up in the morning and I I wasn't miserable you know you'd wake up with that sense of dread and um you know on on top of everything that I was going through I had this beautiful little girl and you feel like you're neglecting them and you feel so guilty that you want more than what you have but um Mm. All of that just kind of added to the the stress pile. But um, finding a consistent yoga practice really helped. It really, really helped. Um, I was nicer to my husband. (laughs) Yeah, I I found that was a game changer for me. Yeah, I can fully understand. And, you know, what you said about having your daughter, I think that's also a really important thing to share more about because, it probably can be overlooked a bit. The fertility struggle for your second child is, I can imagine, equally as challenging as the first. Of course, the first carries a different burden because you don't know if your body will ever be able to do this, right? But maybe that leads to extra questions and, well, why is this not working? And more frustration and more puzzle in terms of, yeah. huh? I've done this before, so why not now? Yeah. Oh, it did. And, you know, especially seeing as my cycle had returned, that was the one thing that was the problem in the first place. So I thought, well, this is going to be so simple. Um, Secondary infertility comes with a whole host of issues that I didn't expect. And a lot of it is what you just said, you know, this expectation you have of your body and look, you've done this before. What's wrong with you? Why can't you do it again? But it was this attitude I got from a lot of people that was the most surprising thing. Like, well, you've already got a child. Why are you, why are you worried? Why are you doing this? Um, and I thought back to when I was going through my first journey and I remember this day I was sitting in the fertility clinic waiting for my appointment and this woman came in with her toddler. I just looked at her and I thought, why would you go through all of this? You already have a baby. Like, this is awful. What you, you got your baby. What are you doing? And then it happened to me and I completely got it. 
in some ways, it was so much harder because I knew how incredible it was to have a baby. And Mm. the thought of not being able to do that again and to give her a sibling, my husband and I are both only children. Um, That was so, so hard. And it, it, you know, I was so surprised by all the comments I would get from, from people that thought that would be helpful. <laughs> I think that's it. I feel like advice often comes from a really good place, a well-intended place, but unless you are extremely empathetic and can put yourself in that person's shoes, sometimes it might be best left a bit unsaid because, okay. you know, the amount of people that also say, you know, just relax. When you relax, it will happen. And you're like, well, I'm getting prodded with needles. I'm getting kind of awful examinations. I'm, I have constant questions in my mind. It's a little bit difficult to just relax. It goes so much deeper than that. Definitely it is. All right. So you, you found yoga. I love yoga. Yoga, I think saved me after my miscarriage earlier this year. I think it was one of the only things that consistently makes me feel just every day a little bit better. 100% agree with you when when you say that, yeah, it changed your life. How long were you practicing before you started noticing changes? Probably about a month that I really noticed the changes. I think this, the sleep thing was the biggest one mm. um, because I, ugh, I mean, anyone who has had insomnia or any kind of sleep deprivation, like having a newborn, <laughs> well, no, it is, it's torture and it just made my life impossible. So it was about a month I noticed that I would fall asleep more easily or if I woke up during the night, I would be able to get back to sleep. And I stopped taking my sleeping tablets altogether, which was incredible. But then it was around the three-month mark that I really felt better. Um, like you said, that little progression every day where it just made me feel a little bit better. And I mean, um, anyone who's done any kind of yoga for fertility might know, but I mean, the practices are not energetic. They're not high intensity vinyasa flows or anything like that. A lot of it is really restorative. So you're, you're kind of lying around on cushions, breathing and meditating. Like it's, it's really easy, but, um, it's, it was the thing I didn't do it. I didn't stop. I didn't slow down. And it was what I needed. A hundred percent. I was just thinking your body's been through so much. It probably didn't need high intensity postures and flow. It probably needed to just calm and ground. Yeah. But no one tells you that really, you know, it's, it's what's the next treatment? What, what can we do next? What potential cycle is, you know, going to be an option for you? It's not something we think about. No. And and did you continue to try naturally after the failed IVF and starting yoga? We did. And even though they told me that my tubes were partially blocked, um, you know, they didn't tell me they were completely blocked. We thought, look, we have literally nothing to lose um, and no other options. So yeah, we kept trying and my cycle balanced out a little bit as well. And I think that yoga had a lot to do with that. Uh, I noticed I would ovulate more consistently on a certain day rather than day nine, one month and day 11, the next and day 16, the one after that, Um, that became a lot more regular. And my cycle lengthened by a couple of days too, which was really promising. And a couple of months after that, I fell pregnant naturally. Wow. It was a couple of days before my birthday and I couldn't believe it. I, I, you know, I had no 
no reason to think it would would happen. My period was a couple of days late and I thought, look, I'll just go and get a pregnancy test. It's what's the worst can happen, you know. And it was positive. I couldn't believe it. it we were beyond excited. <laughs> oh God. How did you tell your partner? Your husband? I ran into the kitchen screaming. <laughs> 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 my daughter was there and we were jumping and yeah, it was a it was amazing. So we um we went to the doctor the next day and confirmed the pregnancy with blood test. Everything was looking good. I started getting sick, which is what happened with my, you know, my first pregnancy. And everything was looking great. Um, they booked me in for an initial scan a couple of weeks later. Um, and at that scan, I probably would have been five and a half, close to six weeks pregnant. So sometimes you can see a heartbeat, sometimes you can't. Mm. And the doctor said, look, you're measuring a little bit behind where I would like to see at this stage, but it's not the end of the world. It's very early days. It's We, we can't know the day exactly that you ovulated, so we could be a couple of days out. I was pretty sure I knew when I ovulated, but, you know, it could have been not entirely accurate. So they said, look, come back in a week. We'll do the next scan. Hopefully we'll see the heartbeat then. So that was a very long week mm. and we went back the next week and sadly the pregnancy was not viable. Um, it hadn't grown at all. Mm. And ah, this was still during COVID. So, you know, um, my husband could be there with me, but I had to have a DNC um, for anyone who doesn't know. It's basically an abortion to remove the fetal tissue um, because my body was holding the pregnancy and not letting it go. So we had to book into that and he couldn't be with me because of all of the restrictions. So that was, that was a really, really hard week and an awful, awful day. But when I think back to when that IVF cycle wasn't successful, it just wasn't my rock bottom like it was then. I, I had fallen pregnant naturally and I just, I, I had stumbled onto something, you know, no one had ever told me this was possible. Doctors had said, oh, you know, you might have a 5% chance of falling pregnant naturally if you're lucky. Um, we don't think it's likely, but so I proved them all wrong. And there was this sense of hope and this sense of capability that I had never had before. And don't get me wrong, I was a complete mess. I couldn't get out of bed for mm. a couple of weeks and did no parenting or, you know, communicating with anyone. It was it was a really hard time, but um but I knew I had stumbled onto something amazing. Yeah, and there's power in that. There's power and there's faith restored in your body and mother nature and I think it's okay that you didn't parent for a couple of weeks after going through something like this. I think it's important to take that time that you need physically and emotionally. You want to be able to give everything to your daughter and that's you've gone just through quite hell, really. And when you got out of bed and, you know, started to heal, what did you decide to do next? Were you at that point thinking maybe we take a break or we keep going or... So my type A personality kicked back in okay. and I was like, I need to learn more. What is this yoga thing? 
And so I decided to become a teacher. So I went and there were the only options at that stage were online trainings. But I think that one amazing thing that came out of COVID was that all of the fitness industry and the wellness world went online. So I had access to teachers that I would never have been able to train with. And because I had such an extensive exercise science background, I felt quite comfortable in learning about the body and movement um, online rather than in person because I had been doing it for so long. Mm. Um, the thing that I was really struggling to get my head around with yoga is because I am more of an, you know, uh, left-brained person with a science background, I wanted to know the science of why yoga worked. And to me, that was kind of the thing that drove me. Um, and I love all of the woo and the spiritual stuff. And I actually think that that is the biggest reason that it works, but there is so much science behind it and why it works. And it was used for many, many, many years as medicine and to heal people long before we had modern medicine that we have today. And there is a lot of research to say why it works and how it works and what effects it has on your body. So I dove into all of that um, with, you know, huge enthusiasm and decided to employ all the principles back into my life. But I got a little bit too rigid with it and went back to the, you know, 19 supplements a day and the perfect diet. And I was like, well, I've got the yoga now. So I've just got to make sure I do everything else perfectly. And, you know, this went on for a few months and I became hard to live with again, I imagine. And there was that just devastation month after month, you know, when it didn't happen. I don't know what happened, but one day I just decided to give it all up. You know, I, I still took, you know, a prenatal vitamin and, you know, went to a massage occasionally or went to acupuncture when I felt like it, but I just stopped doing all the things. And mm. I thought, look, I'm just going to continue with my yoga when I feel like it, whether that was once a day or every second day or a couple of times a week. And that's when it happened. I fell pregnant again. My and gosh. That wasn't the easiest pregnancy, unfortunately, but he was a very healthy little boy and he is almost two. Oh my gosh, Jen. And natural, natural as well. Yeah. 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 I couldn't believe it. And, you know, I was prepared to go through IVF again, but um, I had this knowing in the back of my mind that it wasn't the answer for me. You had an intuition. I think there's, I think there is definitely something in that, especially when, and you know, you use the word woo, this might sound a bit woo, but when you do a lot of yoga, when you do a lot of journaling, when you do anything that's really um, pauses, uh, yeah, forces you to pause and get in touch with your body. There is female intuition. I really believe that. I've been saying now for a while that I feel like there is something wrong, and it's it is an intuition. And I do think there's sort of power in that. Um, Definitely, and, and, and all you, women have it. Yes, all women have it. It's about getting in touch with it. And do you credit the yoga for that? I do. I, I I think I did a few things at the same time. I think um, going through my yoga teacher training was helpful because it kept my mind off obsessing about fertility. Mm -hmm. That was incredibly helpful. And it just, it just gave me something else to focus on. Um, it, it allowed me to let go 
I think of things that I was desperately holding on to. I had this obsession that before we moved back to Australia, I had to have had my second baby. But why was that such an obsession? I mean, what what difference would it have made, you know, if I had gone back to Australia and, you know, continued to try? And I didn't realize that was such a thing I was holding on to, um, just little things like that. Mm. I think a combination of just learning to get in touch with yourself and listen to yourself and your body um, in a lot more detail was what really changed things for me. Mm. And your boy arrived safely. And then at what point did you create elements? <laughs> so... Uh, it was when I was pregnant, actually. I had I'd done a lot of my yoga tra- training at that stage. I had completed my 200-hour teacher training, which is like your initial qualification, and I was working towards the 500-hour one. Mm-hmm. But I found an amazing training school that was teaching fertility yoga, and they did a lot of pre- and postnatal work as well, which I was super interested in. It was a, a big focus of what I teach in Pilates. So I went and did all of that. And um and I thought there is no one teaching this. Like there are, there are a few people that I know now around the world that offer fertility yoga, but there are no classes in studios. There's no, you know, awareness of, of this practice. And I thought this needs to be known more than it is. And yes, it helped me fall pregnant, but I think the bigger thing was that it helped me and it changed my life in other ways. You know, if it had just helped me fall pregnant, but it hadn't allowed me to be more patient or more empathetic or more aware of myself, I don't think I would have gotten into it as much. But because it allowed me to do all of these things, I thought if one little thing can make your journey of infertility easier, it is worth getting the message out there. So that's how I started it. And, you know, originally when I put uh, my business out there, it was very much a fertility, pregnancy and postpartum offering, but it was there, it was the fertility stuff that people were really gravitating towards. I think there, there is so much pre and postnatal help out there on the internet, you know, especially in the exercise world. But when it comes to fertility, there is very little. So I changed my focus. And now while I do still support my students once they fall pregnant, uh, that is my main focus. So I offer online courses, I offer private classes, um, and it's been such an incredible journey. Wow. That's really great. It makes sense actually that fertility is what people were drawn to because I think you mentioned it earlier. You went into it all, I think, a bit naive like me. You sort of just think we'll get pregnant and it does then take people by surprise and that adds to the whirlwind of emotion that follows. So, yeah, I can understand how people really latched on to to that element of <laughs> that element of elements. <laughs> My last question, Jen, you, you've been through an extraordinary journey here from getting married, not getting your cycle back, going through, you know, 18 months of nothing happening, failed IVF, natural pregnancy, miscarriage. I mean, it's so much that's happened to you and given 
it was all during COVID and being in a foreign country twice. What would be the biggest thing you've learned through all of this? Oh, there are two things, I think. Um, you, you are not meant to do this alone and we do do it alone. And I feel like society kind of pressures you into that. You know, I, I feel like our ancestors would never have let that happen. You know, if, if someone in your village or your tribe had been struggling to have a baby, they would bring in the wise woman, they'd bring in the medicine man and they would rally around her and they would support her. And, you know, we've lost so much of, of that ancient wisdom and, mm. you know, our lives now are very, very different. So if you are on this journey, it isn't something you should think you have to do by yourself. And whilst you might have the most supportive partner in the world, he's going through it for the first time too. Mm. So, you know, whether that is a friend that's been through it, whether that is a yoga teacher or a Reiki healer or just someone who gets it, I think that would be the biggest thing. And just one more. And I, I know I try to be careful saying this because it's a very hard and very triggering thing to hear when you are struggling. But the life that you can have on the other side, when you have been through so much heartache, so much struggle, you learn so much about yourself and what you're capable of. And I wouldn't have the relationship with my husband. I wouldn't have the connection with my kids. Well, maybe I would, but I feel like I am more patient with them than perhaps I would have been. I'm not a patient person. I certainly wouldn't have the business that I have now, which is just it lights me up every day. I get to wake up and help other women in this space. So if you can hold on and just know that on the other side of this, better things are coming, Mm. I hope that helps. It does. It really does. It's so strong of you. It's so brave to sit here and relive it all. And I'm really thankful and grateful that you've done that because I can also imagine it brings up a lot of very deep and very emotional memories for you. But the fact that you've turned all of this into a lesson and into something positive and into something that helps women is remarkable. And thank you, Anna. Yeah, it's really, really a great thing. Thank you. That means a lot. And I'm incredibly lucky. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I just wish you nothing but happiness on your journey. And, um, please keep doing the amazing work that you're doing as well. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much, Jen. Yeah. Also really grateful that people have have responded to it and are enjoying it. And yeah, thank you again so much for, for sharing this. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.